0: You're listening to audio from Northway Church. For more information about Northway and additional resources, please visit northwaychurch.com. Good morning, Northway Church. My name is Kathleen Bautista, and I serve in women's Bible class and gospel communities. Our scripture reading for today is actually from the book of Deuteronomy. I will be reading Deuteronomy 25, verses 5 through 10. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn there now. And if you don't, there should be one under the seat in front of you. All right, this is Deuteronomy 25, verses 5 through 10. If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. And if the man does not wish to take his brother's wife, then his brother's wife shall go up to the gate to the elders and say, my husband's brother refuses to perpetuate his brother's name in Israel. He will not perform the duty of a husband's brother to me then the elders of his city shall call him and speak to him. And if he persists saying, I do not wish to take her, then his brother's wife shall go up to him in the presence of the elders and pull his sandal off his foot and spit in his face. And she shall answer and say, so shall it be done to the man who does not build up his brother's house and the name of his house shall be called in Israel, the house of him who had his sandal pulled off. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thanks, Kathleen. Church family, good to be with you this week. Lest you think that was a cruel joke I just played on Kathleen to have her read that text. And you're wondering what in the world does Deuteronomy 25 about a brother who won't take his brother's wife spit in his face and leave a sandal, whatever. What does that have to do with our text today? has everything to do with it. If you would, turn with me to Genesis chapter 38 as we continue our study in Genesis this week. If I haven't had the chance to meet you, my name is Shay Sumlin, one of the pastors here. Grateful you're with us. We are studying the book of Genesis. We're in the final leg here. We've got nine weeks left. And uh, last week, we looked at the providence of God The providence of God is that sovereign plan of God that works out the ordained means to accomplish God's decreed ends for the good of his people and for the glory of his own name. And we looked at the providence of God in using an awful tragedy last week, such as in the story of Joseph, a righteous man who was sold into slavery by his own brothers And we looked at the idea of how God is going to use that tragic event in the coming pages to bring about an earthly good for his people. Now, this week, we're going to look at kind of part two of sin, suffering, and the providence of God. But we're going to do so this week in chapter 38 from the other side of the same coin. Whereas last week, we looked at God using the evil that is done against God's people and God sovereignly using that evil to bring about good for God's people. This week, we're gonna look at what happens when we have our own self-inflicted sins, when we're the ones as God's people doing harm to others and how God can still in his sovereign providence use that to bring about our good in his glory. So that's what we're gonna look at here today. Um, If you have ever felt like your own sins have brought such collateral damage on your life or the lives of others, and you question God's ability to forgive you, to heal you, and to bring about any eternal good, not only in your own life, but for the sake of others, this message is for you. Chapter 38. Now I gotta warn you though, Part of why I had Kathleen read that text is because it's helpful. The other part is because this is an incredibly graphic chapter. And so if we have young ears in the room, I just want parents to have that heads up. Uh, This is some graphic language here, but I, I think we're gonna see that this text is here for a reason, a very intentional reason in this narrative in Genesis. But it seems oddly placed. If you look at the last verse of chapter 37, It says, meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him, that is Joseph, into Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. Now go look at chapter 39, verse one. 39, not 38, 39, verse one. Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt and Potiphar, an officer in Pharaoh and captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. It seems like chapter 37 and chapter 39 would just flow so seamless together. You should be able to go right into the story of Joseph. But instead, we have this one chapter, chapter 38, right in the middle, where we have this graphic sexual encounter between Judah and his daughter-in-law, Tamar. And you go, what? Why? Why is this here? But again, as we learned last week, under the sovereign providential hand of God, there is something the author, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is intending for us to see in this chapter that God was up to, not only in the formation of the one brother, Joseph, who was sinned against, but also how God's providence is at work in the formation of another brother, Judah, who commits his sins against others. God is doing both for the good at the same time. In fact, we're given a key marker right out of the gate. Look in verse one of chapter 38. It happened at that time. What time? Well, the time that Joseph was being taken down to Egypt. That's what's about to happen here in chapter 38. Chapter 37, Joseph is 17 years old when he is taken down to Egypt. By the time we get to chapter 41, he's gonna be 30 years old when he is elevated to the Prince of Egypt, the second most powerful position in Egypt. By the time his brothers reconcile with him in chapter 42, it's probably been now another 17 years. So 17 years when he was taken into slavery and then 17 years until he's reconciled to his brothers takes place here. So chapter 38 is essentially the camera panning away from Joseph's 17 years in Egypt and now covering the 17 years that was happening parallel to that in Canaan with his brothers, particularly with Judah. And all of that is then gonna intersect in chapter 42. So that's kind of the background here. Look, at us dive in. Chapter 38, verse one, it happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adolamite whose name was Hira. There, Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua and he took her and went into her. She conceived and bore a son and he called his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son and she called his name Onan. And yet again, she bore a son and she called his name Shelah. Judah was in Chazib when she bore him. And so um, right here, if things aren't already bad enough for Judah, back in chapter 37, for selling his brother into slavery for 20 shekels of silver, that already isn't incriminating enough. Now we see right out of the gate, at some point after Joseph's gone, Judah turns away from his brothers and goes off on his own and he buddies up with the surrounding Canaanites. He makes a best friend who's an Adullamite, one of the sect of the Canaanite tribes there in Southern Israel. A guy by the name of Hira, we're gonna see him later on. And through him, he ends up connecting with a Canaanite woman and he marries her. And so like so many others that we've already seen in the story of Genesis thus far, The temptation for integration and compromise with the surrounding culture was so strong and Judah just couldn't resist. And this is ultimately this decision to integrate with the Canaanites is gonna pull him away from God as we're gonna see in this chapter. And it would seem to the original readers who are reading this, that Judah through these decisions that are about to be made is now jeopardizing all of God's promises that he made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It seems like God's promises are threatened here. But we see here, he goes on, he has three sons with this Canaanite woman, Ur, Onan, and Shelah. Pay attention to those, because here we see what happens. Starting in verse six, Judah took a wife for Er, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Er, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord and the Lord put him to death. Now we're not told what wickedness that Er did to deserve such a penalty. We don't know ultimately what it was, but what we're meant to see here and the original readers are meant to see here, this is not just an, a random act of the wrath of God against an individual. My goodness, if that were the case for anyone's sin, we'd all be taken out. But rather what you're meant to see here as the story progresses is that this is actually an act of mercy of God in preserving the promised line of the Messiah. This was an act of mercy more than we're meant to see it as an act of wrath. But nonetheless, in verse eight, then Judah said to Onan, go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her And raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground so as not to give offspring to his brother. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord and he put him to death also. Now, awkward graphic scene right here seems odd to us in so many ways, but what is going on here is exactly what we read in Deuteronomy 25 uh, at the beginning of the service. This is an ancient custom that would eventually be codified into biblical law, Mosaic law in Deuteronomy 25, known as a leveret marriage. Levir is actually a later term, uh, Latin term that means brother-in-law. It's a brother-in-law Um, law that's put in place here. In the ancient world, one of the most vulnerable people was a widow in these days. Apart from her husband, she has no covering, no protection, no security. And especially if she had no grown children, she could be really endangered. In addition, if she and her husband had no children at the time of his death, there would be no one to carry on that husband's name, no one to carry on the inheritance of the family. That inheritance could go to another family. And so therefore it was customary that as a father, if your oldest son died and left a widow who was childless and you had another son in line, then you would have him take on his brother's wife, the widow and in doing so, any children that they had together would essentially belong to the deceased brother and the inheritance would go to his line, not your line. Seems incredibly odd to us, but nonetheless, this was honorable in this culture and then codified in Mosaic law. And so in this situation, Ur has died. Onan is now given in levirate marriage to Tamar so that he can fulfill his duty in the honor of his brother, but he doesn't. And this is uh, extreme selfishness because in one sense, he is totally okay with satisfying his sexual desires and pleasure with his brother's widowed wife, but he is unwilling to honor his name and give a child to that woman so that his brother's inheritance would go to that child, he was unwilling to do so. And you go, why? Because he knows that's not gonna be his child in the inheritance sense. He knows that the, the offspring will belong to his brother, he knows that the, the inheritance will go to that child, and he doesn't want that. And so it's a power play that's going on here. Ironically, it's a power play just like Judah and his brothers had done in dishonoring Joseph. They didn't like Joseph being the firstborn, so they sold him into slavery. Onan doesn't like this child getting the inheritance, so I'm not gonna give him that child. And by the way, just while we hear a sermon within a sermon, this is not a proof text for anti-birth control. This text has been hijacked so many times to say, see, God took this guy out because God is against birth control. That is not a proof text in this. You're missing the lead story if that's where you conclude. This is God's mercy yet again to preserve the promised line of the Messiah. So two men are taken out right now. Now, in the event that the second brother dies, if you have a third brother in line as Judah did in Shelah, then you would then offer him next. But notice what happens in verse 11. Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah my son grows up for he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. In other words, Judah gets superstitious. Rather than seeing the sins of his own sons as the cause of their death, he instead is gonna blame Tamar there must be something about this woman. I've given two sons to her and they've both died. The heck if I'm giving a third one to her. And so he comes up with a ruse that, hey, Shalah just a young boy. Let him age a little bit. And when he is of the age of marriage, I'll give him to you. But the whole time, Judah, as we'll see in a moment, never intends to give this child to Tamar. He is sentencing her to a life of perpetual widowhood a cruel act that we're meant to see. And so in verse 12, in the course of time, the wife of Judah, she was daughter, died. So Judah becomes a widower himself. And when Judah was comforted, he then went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers, he and his friend Hira, the Adolamite. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garments, covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up and sat at the entrance of Enaim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown up and that she had not been given to him in marriage. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute for she had covered her face. When uh, he turned to her then at the roadside and he said, come, let me come into you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. And she said, what will you give me that you may come into me? He answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, if you give me a pledge until you send it. He said, what pledge shall I give you? She replied, your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her, he went into her and she conceived by him. And then she arose and went away, taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. Oh boy. So Judah, here's what's going on. Judah has become a widower. He has lost his wife. His daughter-in-law is a widow. After the time of mourning was done, there's a time period when you grieved over the loss of your spouse. When that formal time had been completed, he then heads up to Timnah, where it's, they would hold these sheep shearing festivals. You'd bring all your sheep in and, and all the sheep would get sheared. And all this is being held at Timnah. Have we heard of the name Timnah before if you've read your Bible? Yeah, Fast forward into the future, Timna is gonna show up in the story of Samson. Timnah is the place where Samson would go to find a woman that he was never supposed to have. And so here you have what seems to be an intentional journey of Judah and this Adulamite friend, Hira, going up and he sees what he thinks is a cult prostitute and he uh, offers her an opportunity to sleep with him, that he could sleep with her. And, uh, and here's the deal, as he's going up there, Tamar notices, she sees Shelah with him and realizes he's of marital age and he's not, she's not been given to me. So she knows Judah has no intention of giving her another husband through Leverite law and custom here. Instead, she decides, I'm gonna take things into my own hands. And she's going to dress up like a cult prostitute. If I can't get a child through Judah's sons, then I'm going to get a child through Judah. And she entices him and he entices her. And having no idea, Judah does, that this is his daughter-in-law. But nonetheless, he promises her a payment for sex here, that of a, a goat. The problem is he left his wallet at home. All he's got is sheep with him. And so he's only got sheep, no goats. And so she, being shrewd in this moment, asks him for three items of collateral. A signet, be like a signet ring, his cord, maybe that which held the signet ring, and his staff that he would walk with. These are all very personal items that could be traced to him. It'd be like us handing over, somebody in our day handing over a driver's license, social security card, and your car keys as a down payment until you could pay later for this. And we'll see in a moment for Tamar, this is more than just collateral for sex. This is actually collateral just in case there's going to be a cover up so she can cover her back. Very shrewd moment right here. And so verse 20 verse twenty to 22, Judah makes good on his promise. He ends up sending a goat for her, but the problem is he can't find her. There's no such cult prostitute around anymore. They don't know. They don't know who this ever was. So in verse 23, Judah basically says, well, forget about it. Let her just keep the personal items. Nobody has to know about this. No big deal until verse 24. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, Bring her out, let her be burned. And as she was being brought out, she sent word to her father in law and said, By the man whom these things belong, I am pregnant. And she said, Please identify who these are the signet, the cord, and the staff and then judah identified them and judah said she is more righteous than i since i did not give her to my son Shelah, and he did not know her again it's an awful scene i mean again if we could spend weeks here just talking about jacked up family dynamics we would have evidence for days this is an awful situation And yet, the end of the story right here, it's very similar to that of David and Bathsheba. Remember, after David had slept with Bathsheba and he did all those cover-ups, even had her own husband uh, killed, trying to cover up a pregnancy with Bathsheba until God sends along Nathan, his friend and a prophet, who tells him this story. Hey, David, there's this story of this really wealthy guy. He's got everything he could want, need of nothing. And he goes over to this one guy who's poor, only has one new lamb to his whole possession. And this guy takes that lamb from him, keeps it for himself. And David goes, that guy should be killed for what he did. And Nathan goes, David, you're the man. You're the man. It's the same situation right here. The horrific irony is that Judah is more incensed that his daughter-in-law had an illicit pregnancy through immorality rather, and he wants to see her burned for it, rather than him being incensed at his own sin. This is a twisted sense of justice that's going on right here. It's a horrific scene and he makes you realize, church don't miss this, how easy it is for us, as Jesus said, to zealously point out the speck in your brother and your sister's eye when there is a dadgum cell phone tower sticking out of yours and mine. We are so quick to judge everybody else's sins so righteously and demand justice. And we have no ability to get downwind of our own selves and realize what sinners we are in need of deserving of the same justice and in need of God's mercy. But Tamar being so shrewd here, knowing that this indeed might happen, she busts out that evidence and goes essentially, Judah, you're the man. You're the one who did this. Verse thirty-eight, or verse 27 of chapter 38. When the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb. And when she was in labor, one put out a hand and the midwife took it and tied a scarlet thread on his hand saying, this one came out first. But as he drew back his hand behold his brother came out and she said what a breach you have made for yourself therefore his name was called Perez afterward his brother came out with a scarlet thread on his hand and his name was called Zerah now if this birth account seems remotely familiar it's because it is where have we seen the story of twins before Judah's dad Jacob and his brother, Jacob and Esau. Remember, in that story, Esau came out first, but Jacob had his hand sticking out, grabbing his heel on the way out. And in a sense, that story there was telling us that even though Esau was the firstborn, the rightful heir of the father's blessing and inheritance, it was actually gonna be the younger who would serve, who would be served by the older rather than, vice versa. And the same is true in this story here. Zara was supposed to be the firstborn, but Perez pulls a NASCAR and passes him on the outside and thus serving here as a foreshadow of what we'll soon see is that the older is going to serve the younger and not vice versa. More on that in a minute. Here's what I want to do. That's the text. Why is this here? Why is this story here? Again, I could probably do a whole sermon series on jacked up families. And we could just talk for days about your family, my family and what's going on here in this text. But that would be again, bearing the lead that you're intended to see in this chapter. There are two things that I wanna talk about as takeaways in this chapter. Two things that both the original readers and ourselves would do well to take note of. Here's the first thing I think we're meant to see in this text. And it is the importance of true repentance from sin and the power of God's transformational grace. It's the first thing I think we're meant to see. We're meant to see a juxtaposition in this grand narrative here from chapter 37 to chapter 38 into chapter 39. You're meant to see a juxtaposition between the righteousness of Joseph and the sinfulness of Judah. These are very clear. Judah is the inflictor of evil. Joseph is the recipient of evil. Judah is gonna run towards sin. Joseph, as we'll see in the coming chapters, is gonna flee from sin. There, you're seeing this contrast here. But while Judah's sin is certainly on display in chapter 38, do not sleep on verse 26. Verse 26 is a hinge point in Judah's life. When it says, when he confesses, she is more righteous than I. Here is a guy who holds out on giving his daughter-in-law his son, deceives her. That family trait of deception, just continuing on down. He's willing to commit her to perpetual widowhood. He's gonna sleep with her, although unknowingly, but he's gonna sleep with her. And then he's willing to judge her for that and not himself. It's a wicked dude put on display here in this sin. And yet, when his sin finally gets exposed, notice in verse 26 what he doesn't do. He doesn't make excuses. He doesn't blame her anymore. He owns it. He owns it. And more importantly, Moses, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writing here in verse 26, lets us know that he never slept with her or touched her in that way again. We have a term for this in verse 26, a biblical term. It's called repentance. Repentance. And it's the first time in all these accounts that you see Judah not only broken over his sin, but that he actually turns from it. Starting in his heart, and as you'll see in the coming chapters, the fruit is in his life. He turns from it. Understand this, because we're meant to see this. Feeling sad about our sin, feeling broken over our sin is a good thing when it's done out of a righteous conviction. David confessed in Psalm 51 when he said, God, if all you wanted was burnt offerings and sacrifices, I'd bring those to you, but what God is after is a broken and contrite heart. That's a good thing. But please know this that is not the end. There must be a turning from that sin in heartfelt obedience to the Lord, or else it's not repentance. Our generation, and I'm going to include myself in this, our generation is marked by an incredible authenticity and transparency when it comes to our failings. It's one of the good things I see happening. There's at least more vulnerability in the church today to at least be willing and transparent, whether it's at a pulpit or in the pew, to be able to go, yeah, I'm a broken human being and this is going on in my life and I'm a jacked up individual and I got issues. We are great at confession, but we are still awful at repentance. In Texas, we would use the phrase, that guy's all hat and no cattle. You, you bring a big front by owning your sin, but there's nothing there to back it up if there's no repentance from it. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10: godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret whereas worldly grief produces death. Did you catch what he means there? There is a form of grief that is in our secular world that all of us can demonstrate from time to time where we do something wrong and we go, oh, we know it's wrong, we feel it's wrong, and we go, oh, but we're not going to do anything about it. And it doesn't help us. There's no repentance there. But godly grief, is a good thing when from the perspective of the scriptures, and the grace of God and the mercy of God, we can look upon our sin. How do we do that by the way? If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you have God's word. It is a divine mirror of who God is and his righteousness. And we can look at it and we can see who God is and what his decrees are that are intended for human flourishing. And we can see that and by the Holy Spirit's power within us, convicts us of what we see and sees how in our own life we have drifted from what God's standard is. That is a good thing. That is a gift of the Holy Spirit to illumine to us with conviction, a godly grief that would cause us to say, God says this, I'm living this way, and I am not in accord with God's standard, and by his grace, I want to be realigned with him. That's a good thing but here's what makes it godly is that it leads to repentance. Repentance then pushes us to Jesus Christ where we are not shamed for those sins, but we receive his forgiveness. We receive his salvation. Like this is a good thing for us. Understand God is not like wicked earthly parents or wicked friends who when we are caught in a trespass, it's exposed or we bring it forth in the light and it is met with shame and condemnation. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He is eager and willing to receive you back and cleanse you of your sin. This is, this is true repentance that we not only own our sin, but we would then turn away from it by his grace. Verse 26 is certainly a rebuke for those who confess their sins and never repent. But don't miss this. Verse 26 also points us to the hope of God's transformational grace when we do repent. How do I mean that? Because we see it in Judah's life. Can I just spoiler alert, let you know what's coming? The next time you're going to see Judah is in chapter 44. When he is given the chance to sell out yet another brother. In chapter 44, he and his brothers are going to be standing before Joseph in Egypt. They're going to have no idea it's Joseph because he's now the second most powerful position in all of Egypt. And they're standing there before him trying to get some grain. Joseph knows who they are, knows it's his brothers, and Joseph is going to test them. He's gonna leave a silver cup in the youngest brother's grain bag, Benjamin, so that he can be caught. looks like he's been stealing. And as a punishment, Joseph is gonna say that that brother must die. And if he's not gonna die, you know what? I got a better plan. How about he becomes a slave in Egypt? It's exactly what happened to Joseph. 20 silver shekels sells Joseph into slavery. Now a silver cup is gonna sell the next youngest brother into slavery. And in that moment, do you know who steps up on behalf of the brother? Judah. Judah, who had already sold one brother out, how easy would it be to go, hey, I didn't do that, that's his, take him, we're gone, and just do the same thing, but he doesn't. Judah steps up in chapter 44. It says, take me. I know the harm that I've done to my family and I'm not gonna do it again. Take me, let him go. Judah in chapter 44 is not the same person. He has been changed. He has been humbled. He is sacrificial and selfless. He has been changed. And the same is true for any of us who will turn from our sin and unto Jesus. First John 1, 9 If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Psalm 103, David, who committed that sin with Bathsheba and experienced God's forgiveness and grace, confesses this, God does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. This chapter is here to remind us that no matter how much you have sinned, no matter how far you have fallen, God's grace is sufficient for you. And God's grace is not only sufficient for you, it's transformative. By the power of the Holy Spirit, if you will yield yourself to God in repentance, confess your sins, bring them into the light, don't hang out in the darkness of shame. Bring it into light, not to receive his condemnation, but to receive his forgiveness. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, make you a new person and transform your life. Clearly, this is one thing we are meant to see here. There is a second thing, and it is once again, the providence of God. What we are meant to see in this chapter is the providence of God to use the sins of God's people in order to bring about eternal good. Note, at the end of chapter 38, it looks like evil's won. It looks like sin has won again, and God's promises are threatened But just as last week where we saw God's providence with Joseph to bring about an earthly blessing and he's gonna use Joseph to rescue his family and all of Israel. In the same way, God is gonna use Judah's sin to bring about an eternal blessing. Now notice a few parallels in this text that are reminding us in Judah of his father, Jacob. They're purposeful. Esau, we already mentioned about the twins, right? But notice also Esau, who was the firstborn, was nicknamed Edom, and Edom means red because Esau was ruddy when he came out, right? He was red. In this story, the firstborn is identified by a scarlet, a red thread, and thus is named Zerah, which means scarlet. Jacob, likewise, he sought to obtain blessing that he so desperately wanted through manipulation and disguise, right? Putting on the hairy brother armor there. In this story, Tamar, so desperate to receive the blessing of a child, also does so through manipulation and disguise as a cult prostitute. Also in this story, Tamar, like so many matriarchs, is a woman who just can't seem to get pregnant. And yet, like those before her, amazingly, she does. The original reader was meant to see these parallels, meant to see these connections because there's something special that is connecting the story of Jacob to the story of Judah, not Joseph. You would expect an eternal blessing to come through Joseph, but it's not, it's gonna come through Judah and it's true. First of all, Judah is gonna become the largest of all the tribes of Israel. It will become the leader of all the tribes of Israel. Judah is going to be the last tribe standing when the Assyrians come in in 722 BC and knock out the northern kingdom. From that point on, listen to this from that point on, God's people will most commonly be referred to as not Israelites, but Yehudaites, Judahites. And then later on, through mispronunciation, Judahites will become known as Jews. The Jewish people are named after Judah. This guy is carrying a mantle in the days to come. But most importantly, what we see in the life of Judah is not just the pitfalls of this man, but the providence of God in using those pitfalls Listen to this. At the end of his life, Genesis chapter 49, Jacob is speaking a blessing over his sons. Listen to what he says of Judah. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. That's what Judah means, praise. Your your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up he stooped down, he crouched as a lion and as a lioness who dares to rouse him. The scepter shall not but depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute, that is Shiloh, comes to him and to him shall be the obedience of his peoples. I'll save the preaching for when we get to that chapter, but I'll tell you this, he's told two primary things are gonna come from you, Judah. A conquering lion is gonna come through you and a scepter, a ruler's staff, one who will rule and reign. And you go, wow. So yes, in a sense, Judah, you will bow before Joseph in chapter 42, but by the end of the Bible, the whole world will be bowing to you. Or more importantly, the one who will come through you. You go, how will this happen? Through the most unlikely of ways. Remember those twins that Tamar has. The children she so desperately wanted, the blessing that seemed to be withheld from her and now the product of sin that the world would think is the greatest mistake ever conceived. God says, I'm gonna take that sin. I'm gonna take that mistake and I'm gonna use it for eternal good. Watch me. How do we know what God does? Let me give you a cheat sheet. Matthew chapter one. Just listen to these words. It's a genealogy. Matthew chapter one the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, yep. Isaac was the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of, should it say Reuben here? Simeon? Should it say Joseph? It says Judah. Judah's in the line of Jesus? Judah and his brothers, and Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. And Perez is the father of, and let me tell you, the rest of it goes all the way down. Perez, about a few generations later, is gonna have Boaz. Boaz, a few generations after that, is gonna have King David. And all the way down to Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Indeed, Judah's line will rule Israel all the way until the time of David. David, all the kings are gonna come from Judah. Judah is gonna give forth David, the kingly line, and that kingly line will be established until it reaches its culmination in Jesus Christ, the King of kings, who eternally rules at the right hand of God now and forever until that day when Revelation 5.5 says, weep no more. Why? Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has conquered so that he can open up the scroll and the seven seals. The Messiah Jesus Christ is the Lion of Judah, the one who rules and reigns for all eternity. And he, all of that comes through an illegitimate pregnancy by Judah and Tamar, are you kidding me? To quote the Reverend Kenny Chesney, that mistake he thought he made now covers up the refrigerator what seemed to be the product of sin, God would providentially use to bring about the very one who would later forgive that sin, Jesus Christ. In fact, his whole genealogy there in Matthew is made up of the names of prostitutes and adulterers and liars, pagan nations. Why? Because Isaiah 53 prophesied he would be numbered among sinners, even though he would have no sin. And it's so that when God's people looked upon their salvation, they could look at their genealogy and then go, nope, I had nothing to do with this. It all came from a jacked up line. Only God's providential grace can use my sin and actually bring good from it. You think God can't use your line of crazy? You just got to read Jesus's genealogy. Y'all, I could sit here and tell you about the story of my jacked up family. All the brokenness, entire generations of adulterers. Between my wife and I, we have got so much brokenness on either side of our family. We have homosexuality, we've got affairs, we've got it all in there. There is no reason I should be standing right here, right today as a child of God, forgiven and healed, but by the grace of Jesus Christ. I can tell you about my life and the sexual immorality in my life before I met my wife. I can tell you how far I ran and rebelled from God. I am not worthy of any of it. It is by his grace that he has forgiven me and made me a new creation. And I am still in need of his grace every single day. That's why the apostle Paul, who penned half your quiet times, Wrote this in 1 Timothy chapter 1. Thus, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. God will not waste your suffering and God will not even waste your sin. Now, lest you think that because your sin abounds, so does God's grace, so why not go sin all the more? Go read Romans chapter six. No, we are to take the providence of God And we are to let the understanding of the providence of God and his grace given to us in Jesus Christ free our hearts to flee from sin and to consecrate our lives in grace-filled obedience to Jesus all the more. Church family, I don't care how far you have run from God. I don't care how much sin you have committed. He is the God of second first times. He is the God of new beginnings. May you come forward today, confess your sin to him, bring your sin into the light and turn from it, not to receive condemnation and punitive judgment that has already been met for you in Jesus Christ so that you can receive his forgiveness and allow your past, your sins from this point forward, simply be used as a testimony to others of the grace of God that was available to you and the grace of God that is available to them. Today is a new day in Jesus Christ if you'll only give your trust to him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are in need of this message of mercy. Would you remind us today, God, that your grace runs far deeper than our sin? That if you can transform a guy like Judah, and if you can take a story of Judah and Tamar and Rahab and all the other cast of characters that are in that genealogy, and you can bring forth the redeemer in whom our sins have been forgiven, then God, you can take our stories as broken and as rebellious as they are. And through the grace given us in the cross, you can make all things new. God, fill us with that hope today that we would walk in your grace and forgiveness as we yield our lives in obedience to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.
0: Thank you for listening to this message from Northway Church. A podcast should never replace gathering with God's people to worship Jesus, so we want to encourage you to be a part of a local church family. We meet every Sunday at 9 a.m., 11.15, and 4 p.m., and would love for you to join us as we encounter the truth, beauty, and goodness of Jesus.